Thanks for that song, Joe. You be finding those little instrumentals, man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, those kind of songs, the the melodies, the the music, the the mood of the season, they all can sometimes feel like a kind of fantasy world. Doesn't it? I mean, have you noticed around this time of the year? Everyone, everything seems delightful, at least for, for some of us. I mean, people are kinder. They, they, they let you over on the road, it seems like, around Christmas time. Out in the streets, even in D.C., they, they say hello. They, they, they're respectful. They greet you. People are more kind, more accommodating, more generous, it seems. You can sense it. You can feel it. I mean, you add to that the, the holiday movies where... You can snuggle up and watch the, the many Netflix or Prime movies or the Hallmark movies where the girl always gets the right guy at the end or vice versa. Christmas makes everything work out just as planned, it seems. Christmas is where the conflict with the family gets highlighted but resolved in the movies. Uh, Christmas is where everything you want comes to reality. But, but, but is the joy, is the excitement, is all the promise surrounding Christmas actually real? Is it actually uh, something that you can bank on or is it all just make-believe? I mean, after next Monday... <laughs> Do people just resort to how they've been, unaccommodating, unfriendly, ungenerous, and does your life remain in shambles? The conflicts don't get resolved. The desires don't get met. The presents get returned. In other words, is there any reason, is there any hope for certain joy? Fixed, confident, unchangeable joy. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1 as we consider that this morning. Luke chapter 1. Now normally we'd read the entire chapter of a passage. As many of you looked at this passage this week, perhaps you thought this is going to be a two-hour sermon. It's 80, chapter, 80 verses just in the reading. And this man always wants to read and then go reread when he goes through it. We're not going to do that this morning. All right. We won't look at all 80 verses of Luke 1, but not because all 80 verses of Luke 1 aren't important. Every single word of God's word is important. But because we're going to jump back into Luke 1 next week. All right. As we look at the birth of Jesus. And so this week we're looking at the birth of John the Baptist. So we'll look through a few verses in Luke 1 this week. We'll pick back up in Luke 1 next week and into Luke 2 as we talk about the birth of Jesus. This morning, we'll talk about John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner's birth. And as we walk along the text, we'll start in verse 5, thinking about the, the various details around the narrative of this baby, this important baby who was born. We'll pick up in verse 5 and just kind of walk through the narrative together this morning. But even at the beginning of Luke 1, even at the beginning of Luke 1, See how it begins with the author, Luke, wanting us to know the certainty about some things. Luke 1, starting in verse 1, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. This Theophilus, whom the author Luke addresses here, seems to have been an official in some capacity, someone with some high rank, which is why Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. In any case, what I want us to notice is that Luke, in this passage, in this book, is not fabricating some elaborate hoax. Luke is not spreading misinformation. 
No, Luke is writing to a respectable official and recording true events. Notice he says he's undertaken to compile a narrative, not to create one. And that narrative concerns things that have actually been accomplished among us. In verse 2, Luke says it's been attested by eyewitnesses who've seen these things and delivered them or passed them down to us. And it seems good, Luke says, for me also. Having followed all things closely for some time now, he followed them closely as he was a trusted and frequent travel companion of the great apostle Paul. Uh, Luke says it's, it's good for me also to write an orderly account, an orderly account, an investigated account to Theophilus. For what purpose? Look at verse four. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants Theophilus's faith and by extension, our faith firmed up. He wants our faith deeply rooted and he wants to do that by the firm telling, the firm fact, truth telling, the firm events that really happened in space and time being recorded as part of God's unfolding plan for his people. Well, saints, that's incredibly important for us to hold on to, this, this passage of verses 1 through 4. We're not going to study or look beyond this little brief intro to those verses this morning or next week, but it's important for us to hold on to the truths of verses 1 through 4 in Luke 1. Because as we do spend time in other verses this week and next week in Luke 1 and 2, we're going to hear about some miraculous things about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist and the even more miraculous birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, into the world. And what you might be tempted to think is that this is just like Christmas time. Things that just feel good for a moment but aren't really true and that aren't really worth holding on to. And what Luke means to remind us just in opening this book, is that every single thing I say from the birth of the Son of God to his death on a cross to his resurrection, all are true. It's all facts. This is no fiction or fantasy. These are things that really happen. And the testimony of their happening is passed down to us this morning so that we might have greater certainty in them and have certain joy about them. And what is the great conviction, the great certainty that Luke wants to teach us in our passage this morning? What is this main truth that we'll kind of hang our thoughts on as the main point of Luke chapter 1 this morning? That even when things seem hopeless, you can trust that God will be faithful to his promises for his people. Even when things externally seem hopeless, you can trust that God will be faithful to his promises for his people. It's the main idea of our text this morning. And as we study this passage this morning, we'll focus our thoughts around three developments we see in this text. Zeroed in on one particular family, but with far broader significance. First, we'll see the problem they had. We see that in verses 5 through 7. Second, we'll notice the provision God gave in verses 8 through 25. And, and lastly, we'll, we'll look at the praise God deserves in verses 57 through 79. So the problem they had, the provision God gave, and then the praise God deserved. First, the problem they had. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me in Luke chapter 1. We read there in Luke 1, starting in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The, the problem, 
in looking at these verses, the, the most glaring problem that jumps out at us in these verses concerns the condition of this couple and their childlessness. Uh, but, but the author, Luke, with his attention to detail, means for the attentive reader to be alerted to a problem, not just affecting this couple, but affecting the entire people of Israel. Notice how he begins by giving us the historical setting. Verse 5 says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Those words should be a good sign. A king over God's people in the land that God gave them. I mean, we mentioned last week, uh, one of the darkest books in the Old Testament, Judges, representing one of the darkest times in the nation of Israel, ends with this damning statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So a king over the people ought to represent a positive development ought to represent the king extending God's good and perfect rule over his people, teaching and modeling for the people God's ways. That was God's intention for the king. But this king, Herod, is no real king. And his rule reflects not God's rule, but Rome's rule. Rome the world power at the time had conquered Israel and had installed their own designated ruler, Herod, as a kind of puppet king who keep the people of Israel in line, but whose ultimate allegiance was to the Roman authorities. Herod's rule represents something of God's judgment upon his people. God's people, Israel, had rebelled against the Lord once again. But instead of God sending them into exile, into a foreign land like he did in times past in the Old Testament, this time God brought them under captivity in their own land. And he put a cruel, vindictive man like Herod over them. A man known for his ruthlessness as demonstrated by him having his second wife and her children murdered. As demonstrated by, as we read in Matthew chapter 2, murdering hundreds, perhaps thousands of innocent babies. Once he heard the news from the wise men of a threat to his authority, that there was a new king who was going to be born king of the Jews. This man, verse 5 tells us, was Israel's king. It's a bad sign. Because... Often bad leadership can be an act of God's judgment. This is the problem all Israel faced. They were under God's judgment as revealed by being under Rome's rule through ruthless puppet king of Herod who reigned for a long time. His reign was for over 30 years. Things seemed hopeless. And God seemed silent. And as we saw in previous passages in this series, this Advent series, the people of Israel's problems are shadowed in the problems of a particular family. Verses 5 through 7 introduce us to this priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, both from pure Levite lineage. Not only Zechariah, which was important because to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi, but also his wife was a descendant of Aaron, who was the first high priest in Israel and also of the tribe of Levi. This family had good pedigree and this family had great piety. Verse six tells us of their religious devotion. They were both righteous before God. They both walked blamelessly or above reproach in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. This is the ideal power couple. Not because they were at the top of their professions. Not because they were both uber rich and famous. Those things don't really matter to God. No, these two, husband and wife, were called out, were signaled out, were commended because they were both equally righteous before God. And they followed 
plays. What a wonderful description of a married couple. Young people desiring to marry one day, let this be something that you pray about now for in a spouse. Don't marry exclusively off looks or body because she a baddie. Don't marry sing, uh, singularly off charisma or appeal because he got swagged. Okay, she might be a baddie, he might have swag, but is she godly? Is he godly? Are they going to set you up so that both of y'all together can be talked about as a godly couple who follow the Lord in all their ways? In other words, don't sacrifice your godliness so that you can get married. You can be super godly, but that desire for marriage can mess you up for life. And you end up making a stupid decision to marry someone who don't love the Lord. Right, who use them words, I love Jesus, I come to church with you, they don't love the Lord. Right? Be, be very, very discriminating. Amen. Let your church family help you. We'll help weed out some folks. Bring them, bring them past here, right? God cares about the godliness of a couple. And because God cares about such things, so should we. But as we read on, it doesn't seem like God really cares about such things. Because for all this couple's apparent godliness, they've been rewarded with emptiness. They're godly, verse 6, but, verse 7, they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years. And this is like a double whammy. I mean, in previous weeks, in Judges chapter 13 and in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we've read of other women who could not have children because they were barren, because the Lord had closed up their wombs. But here the problem is multiplied. Not only is Elizabeth barren, but she and her husband are also old, far beyond the childbearing years. Menopause has kicked in all the body functions are not working as they used to right not only does she not have children right she can't have children her, her desires that one day she possibly could now have kind of firmly cemented in no this never would happen their situation like Israel's seems hopeless They've longed for a change in the situation for a long time with no answer. There were hopes year after year that one day the pregnancy test would come back positive. But after year after year after year of negative tests, they held out some kind of faint hope, but now their body so transformed they are resigned to the fact that this is a fixed reality. They sound like another couple in the Bible. 100-year-old Abraham, a 90-year-old Sarah. Now we know what happened there. God touched Sarah's womb and through her seed, promised salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, that seems like a long time ago. All right, we in the New Testament, that was all the way in Genesis. And this couple's hopes for a child seem just as long back in the past. But notice here that the for a child seem dashed, they don't deny God. Amen. They don't deconstruct their faith. They don't turn away from the Lord. They are old, yes, but again, they are still walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Just because God doesn't give you all your desires doesn't mean you should give up trusting and serving him. Amen. Saints, seemingly dashed hopes are never a justification for you to turn your back on God. Amen. Perhaps you need to hear that this morning because you're tempted by the fact that the things you've most wanted in life haven't exactly panned out. Even though you've been faithful to God. Even though as the calendar closes on 2023, you look back and you done came to church 50 out of 52 Sundays so far. You'd have checked off every single box in that morning Bible reading plan. You prayed diligently. 
you're waiting for that year-end giving statement to come back from the treasurer's office showing how many thousands you've given to the church. You've done a lot of faithful living and giving for the Lord, and yet your marriage is still on life support. And yet your bank account is still below balance. And yet your children are still rebellious. If following God is still met with emptiness, why keep following God? Why keep saying no to sin and yes to the Lord when the Lord keeps saying no to me? Because we never follow. We never obey. We never worship the Lord simply for what we can get from him. We always follow, obey, worship the Lord because of who the Lord is. The Lord, he is our creator and king, and he is worthy of our worship. Zechariah and Elizabeth treasured the Lord, and they showed it by living for him. Even as they were faced with the problems, the trial, the hardship of childlessness, and feeling like that problem would never change. But where we have problems... Often we find the Lord to be a good, all-sufficient provider. And we'll see next in our text, the provision that God gave. The provision that God gave. Look with me again in Luke chapter 1. Down at verse 8 as we read through verse 25. We read now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Well, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And we see in the midst of problems, the Lord responds by providing. And we see in this passage, he provides a number of different things. First in verses eight and nine, the Lord provides an opportunity, an opportunity. Really, it's the opportunity of a lifetime for Zechariah to serve in the temple and burn incense on the altar. 
Uh, that sounds like boring, not newsworthy news for us, That's like something beyond that, right? It might seem like a small thing to you and me who are separated by thousands of years from the cultic temple worship trail. But for the people in biblical times, this was a big deal. I mean, the altar of incense was not just at the temple structure. The altar of incense was inside the holy place, separated only by the curtain to the most holy place. If you had a, a kind of visual description or illustration of the temple, you would see the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. And right before that curtain, the closest thing to that curtain was the altar of incense. In other words, the altar of incense was the closest that any priest other than the high priest could ever possibly get to God's presence on earth. And the high priest could only go into the most holy place once a year, right? Zechariah here is right at the doorstep. It's as close as any priest would ever get to the very presence of the Lord. Every priest wanted that opportunity. But there were a lot of priests. There were over 18,000 priests in the tribe of Levi. They were divided into 24 different divisions, each division only serving at the temple twice a year for a week each time. And among all those priests, one might get to ch the chance to burn the incense at the altar of incense perhaps once in the span of their entire lives. Many thousands of priests lived four score and however many years without ever getting to burn incense at the altar of incense right before the presence of God. But verse 9 tells us that Zechariah just so happens to be chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. What a random act. Unless it's not. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 tells us that the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They cast lots. Who's going to be the, the priest of the year to, to go into the temple and offer incense at the altar of incense? They cast these lots, but behind their casting of the lots was a God who was casting his vote and determinatively de de deciding who's going to go before the Lord. The Lord gave this particular priest, out of all the thousands of priests, this particular opportunity to serve at this particular time in the temple at the altar of incense. And for what purpose? Well, we see that God provided not just an opportunity, God also provided an appearance. An appearance by an angel sent from God. Verse 11 tells us that there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense, the, the favorite side. The, the right side is often the favorite side in the Bible. God providentially has placed this man in this temple, at this table, at this altar of incense for such a time as this so that he might have an appearance as well of an angel from the Lord. Angels are messengers from God and they are awesome in splendor and might, right? People don't just flippantly go around in the Bible talking about they've been touched by an angel. Notice we read Zechariah was scared to death when he met this angel. You know, sinless heavenly beings invoke fear when they appear before sinful earthly beings. Sinless heavenly beings Invoke fear when they come into the presence of sinful earthly beings. If that's true of angels sent by God, how much more fearful is it to stand with all your sin in the midst of an absolutely holy and perfect God himself? In any case, this angel is, is not out to destroy, but to deliver. To deliver good news. Through this angel, God not only sends an appearance, God also provides an announcement. Look with me at verse 13. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Oh, it's sweet that the Lord meets us with those words. Fear not. 
don't be afraid. For your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And what amazing news delivered to this priest who he just learned could not have children because his wife was barren and they both were old beyond childbearing years. Unless God says otherwise. God has heard your prayer, the angel says. And your wife, yes, your barren old wife, Elizabeth, don't look for nobody else. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear a son, and he will be great before the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth, old as they were, must have prayed a thousand times over the years. God, please give us a a, a child. Lord, all our friends have dozens of kids. Can we just have one? Lord, we've been faithful. We love you, Lord, please. And the Lord never delivered. God seemed silent year after year after year. Just as the people of Israel must have prayed thousands of times over the years for freedom from oppression from Rome, for God to deliver his people. Notice how verse 10 includes the fact that while Zechariah went into the temple, the people of Israel, the multitude of the people were outside the temple praying. They did so often undoubtedly praying for the Messiah that God said he would send to rescue his people from their enemies. And yet they prayed over and over year after year, just as Elizabeth and Zechariah prayed over and over year after year, their prayers too seemed to fall on deaf ears. God too seemed silent. Indeed, God had been silent up until this point. For 400 long years, there had been no prophetic word from God to his people. As an act of judgment, God had stopped speaking to them through prophets. Until this very day, where this unsuspecting, pain-filled, problem-filled priest goes into the temple, and outside the temple, all these pain-filled, problem-filled people are outside praying, and God uses this particular moment to stop giving Israel the silent treatment. He speaks to his people for the first time in hundreds of years through an angel with news that a son would be born. And not just good news for this couple, but good news in service of the Lord and his, all his people. I notice we read that the, this child, this son would be great before the Lord and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Because of what this child would do. Look at verse 16. He would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'd be used to bring many Israelites to repentance. That's what the idea of turning to the Lord means. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to the Lord. And John would be used to do that. This son, John, would help to bring about in a preparatory way this repentance, this reconciliation back to God. Verse 17 says that he would go before the Lord. He would be the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of Elijah. And he would turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He would make ready for the Lord a people prepared to meet him. The last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, had foretold that God would send Elijah, the prophet in Malachi chapter 4. He promised he would send the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that he turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children's hearts to their fathers. And here the angel announces that none other than Zechariah's son to be born him and his barren wife would serve that role. 
coming before the great and awesome day when the Lord himself would come to visit his people. It ought to bring incredible excitement. It ought to bring immediate joy and gratitude. God has spoken and brought incredibly good news with him. But instead, look at what it produces in Zechariah. Disbelief. Look at verse 18. Zechariah says, how can I know? <laughs> how can I know this? Since I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Friends, don't miss the dichotomy here. It's not a conflicting thing. Zechariah is godly, but he has doubts. The godliest among us can often doubt God's power. The long seasons of suffering, long seasons of waiting might tempt us to do that. But friends, we need to fight those temptations to disbelieve God with the assurances of God's word. We need to doubt our doubts, not God. If you need to doubt something, doubt your doubt. Never doubt the Lord. And we need to counter our doubts, what we say or think is possible, with what God says. However far-fetched it may have seemed, Zechariah needed to believe the word from God through his angel Gabriel. He needed to believe God's word to him from times past, not just through Gabriel, but through other faithful messengers in the past, all throughout the Old Testament. When God, as we've studied through this Advent series, so often brought life to barren and aged people. We talked about Sarah, whom God gave a child at the age of 90. We've mentioned before how God brought life to the barren womb of Rebecca. We've studied how God had brought, brought life to the barren womb of Manoah's wife. We looked at last week how God brought life to the barren womb of Hannah. This Lord brings life. You see, all these testimonies from the times past were meant to be training Zechariah in the test of times present to trust in the Lord. All God's testimonies from the past are meant to give us certain hope, produce certain trust in the test of the present. We must trust what God says. We must believe God's promises because disbelief Understand this disbelief, the alternative, always brings problems, always has consequences. We see that in Zechariah's case. He, he doesn't believe what the angel initially says, and as a result, he's made mute. He can't speak. Verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. I love just how simple and clear the Bible is. It gives us explanations because... You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Friends, let that be a warning to you today. Let me be a warning to all of us today. If you're here this morning and your life is hard and circumstances seem set, do not disbelieve God and his word based solely on your personal experiences, based solely on what you see or what you can't see happening Disbelief, unbelief is sin, and God will judge you for it. It's his mercy that all that happens to Zechariah here is that he can't speak. Amen. He shouldn't be allowed to live. Unbelief is that serious. You disbelieve the very God of the universe who's made himself known to you. And it's God's mercy to you and me that even with our disbelief, even with our unbelief, even with your unbelief, you are here this morning. God has not scorched you and sent you to eternity in hell. You're here this morning. And friends, God is again revealing himself to you, not through a mighty, majestic angel, but through a messy preacher telling you what God has said in his word. Believe. Don't disbelieve, believe. God has brought you here to hear the message of repentance and reconciliation offered through the one that Zechariah's son, John, to the one whom he prepared the way for Jesus Christ, the very son of God who lived for us and who laid down his life for us, who died for us and rose again so that we might be reconciled to God. As you hear God's voice today, 
Do not harden your hearts in unbelief. Turn from sin and trust in him. You want to talk more about what that looks like? Talk to anybody around you after service. Come find me at the door. We'd love to spend as much time as we need to telling you about the Lord's mercy to you and helping you to put your faith in him and his word. As, as Zechariah left the temple, unable to speak, the people somehow knew that he had been given a vision. He, we read about that, but he disbelieved that vision. He rejected that vision. But his muteness now was assigned to them all, to the entire nation. They too had disbelieved God. And as a result, they thought that God was totally silent to them for all these years. Yet God was now speaking to them. And yet the question is, would his people be listening? They now are the mute ones, the silent ones, the dumb ones, as pictured by Zechariah. Yet God would not leave them that way. He was coming to them, not to judge them, but to deliver them. He was coming not to add to their problems, but to make provisions for their problems. And so see the final thing that God provides in these verses. A child. God had provided, these people were in, in the midst of a problem. God had provided an opportunity. God had provided an appearance. God had provided an angel. And then finally, God provides a child. Verse 24, after these days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived. This barren old woman has life in her womb. Friends, that's where all life begins, in the womb. Notice that in all our passages these last few weeks, the conception is where life is, right? You see that again as look next week. As even in, in the womb, the baby leaps for joy at the sight of Jesus, right? And how did it all happen? How did this barren old woman suddenly have life in her womb? It was a miracle from the Lord. Verse 25, Elizabeth states, the Lord has done this for me and taken away my reproach. Indeed, that's what God would do through not only this son, but the greater son that he pointed to. Take away the reproach, take away the disgrace of his people by rescuing us. And what should our response be? Praise. Praise. The third and final thing we see in this passage the praise that God deserves. The praise that God deserves. Look with me at verse 57 of, of Luke 1. We read, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. God's great mercy has brought this woman out of misery, and that should draw praise because God keeps his promises. He vowed that this woman would bear a son and she bears a son, not by chance, but by God's great purposes. In verses 59 through 66 go on to tell us how the child was named. Elizabeth telling all the neighbors that the, the boy's name is going to be John. And they keep on trying to get a name change. They're like, his daddy ain't named no John. His uncles ain't named no John. There ain't no Johns in his family. Elizabeth insists his name is John. So they try to go above his, her, her head. What's your husband say? Well, he ain't saying nothing. He can't speak. <laughs> so they bring the, the, the man a pad. Zechariah, what, what's the boy's name? And look at verse 63. Zechariah writes, his name is John. It's, it's something of a sign of Zechariah's confirmation, finally. His commitment, finally, fully of faith that what God had, had initially said would happen actually happens. I'm trusting the Lord. The Lord said that this barren woman would bear a son and we should call his name John. Zechariah initially disbelieved, but now he can't believe what's before his eyes. And now as he sees what's happened, he can't help but believe what's before his eyes. His name is John. Friends, you shouldn't keep refusing or denying God 
when God shows you the contrary of your doubts. Right? It's foolish that when God shows you something, that you still deny it. I remember talking to a Muslim man one time, rejecting Jesus. And he told me, even if Jesus came back in the flesh and showed me the marks, I still wouldn't believe. Friends, that is not some proud sign of your firm commitment of Islam or whatever worldview you're holding to. That is foolishness. When God shows you above and beyond that he's kept his word and committed his way to you, you should not keep disbelieving. You need to do as Zechariah did. His name is John. God has done what he said he would do. We must trust him. And look what happens here. After Zechariah's writing, his name is John, a kind of final confirmation of what the Lord would do. We read in verse 64 that immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. It's what happens often when the Lord delivers us, gives us faith, right? We can't help but go on in praising the Lord. It's what the woman at the well did. Jesus had loosed her, freed her, given her faith. She went and told all the town about what this man had done. Zechariah goes on to praise the Lord and what he had done, what he was doing. Read with me, starting in verse 67. We read, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. You hear this priest praising the Lord like never before. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. <laughs> I love that. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's amazing here. What you would expect is not what happens. God has granted this barren couple a child. Zechariah breaks out in praise, but it's not in praise for the child. It's not in praise that God, you finally gave us a son. He breaks out in praise for far bigger purposes. He praises God not just for a long-awaited son. He praises God for sending a long-awaited Savior. Blessed be the Lord God, he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Friends, that's the language of the Old Testament. It's the language of Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, when God sent Moses to Israel in Egypt with a message of deliverance. We read in Exodus 4, 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and seen their affliction. Yeah, that's the language of Ruth chapter 1 when the land of Israel was famished. But Ruth heard all the way over in the fields of Moab that the Lord had once again visited his people. Here we are thousands of years removed. And here we are, Zechariah, praising the Lord who once again has visited his people to save them. And Zechariah knew this salvation would not come from his own son. His own son was from the tribe of Levi, like he was. Rather, he says, this salvation would come from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah, as God had spoken from the mouths of the prophets of old. The multiplied prophetic testimonies that, that one of Abraham's descendants would bless or save all the families of the earth that one of David's very descendants would be the true king who'd reign forever. 
Not this little Herod figure that's on the throne now. No, no, this will be another king who reigns over all the world. This son that was to come would rescue God's people from all their enemies. But not mere physical enemies like Rome. Look with me at verse 77 again. No, God would grant salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The sins that you and I have committed are our greatest enemy because they have made us enemies with God. They've incurred to us, for us, God's wrath. The wrath of a holy and just God is now threatening us because of our sins so that all that we should have is a kind of hopeless certainty that we will be met by eternity away from God, suffering under the affliction of God's forever and ever and ever. And yet God gives a son. Again, not Zechariah's son, John. Uh, no, Zechariah prophesies in verse 76, his son would be great, but his son would be a great prophet. A prophet serving like all the other prophets, pointing to Jesus himself. For it would be Jesus himself who would come and be born in the likeness of men, but without a sinful nature. It would be Jesus himself who would come and be born and live a perfect life, yet take on our sins and drink the deep cup of God's judgment poured out against us that we deserve that we might be saved. In our misery, John pointed to Jesus who came to show mercy to all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Verse 79, to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, People like us, to those whose way seemed as hopeless as old Elizabeth and Zechariah, as old wicked Israel suffering in captivity, Jesus came to be light and give light to those who trust in him and to guide our way to peace. Praise God for his abundant mercy. Praise God for his faithfulness to his word. God makes promises and he keeps every single one of them. So that even when things seem absolutely hopeless, we can trust that God will be faithful to his promises for his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us, that teaches us, that leads us to, to Christ and his cross for us. Lord, we thank you that you never forsake your own. That our helplessness does not restrict your helping us. And so, Lord, we plead for your help even now. Strengthen our faith. Give us faith to believe. Lord, help us to embrace your son, Jesus, who you sent to be lights upon our darkness, to save us from our enemies, chiefly to save us from our sins. Thank you for Christ. Help us to live for him and do all for him. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.